you have to kill your ego and you have to admit when you're wrong, right? This process only works if you're able to throw your bad ideas out the window. And don't get me wrong, I've had tons and tons of bad ideas. It's never a waste to go out and test and try different things because you never know if you have an idea, I think it's worth exploring, even if it hits a dead end. I do think it's something you've learned you may use at some other point. You just can't connect the dots. This is how we kind of move forward from here. Hello, and welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets up deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. This is episode 98 with Tarek Patel. Tarek is an MD that's not Master of Dice, that's an actual medical doctor. Yes, he's a trained medical doctor. He is a Magic the Gathering grinder and also the flesh and blood U.S. National Champion. I have to say, coming into this interview, I didn't know too much about Tarek. I didn't know almost anything about Flesh and Blood, the card game. But this ended up being one of my favorite conversations of the year. Because we went really deep. We didn't just talk about Flesh and Blood. We did talk about it. We didn't just talk about magic. But we talked about peak performance. We talked about the mental aspect of starting from zero and leveling up because Tarek has actually been a hyper competitive player of many things not just magic not just flesh and blood he has a system there's a reason why he became a doctor a successful one there's a reason that he became who he is today so we're going to explore that the other thing that I really loved about the conversation is that we started going deep we started going into mortality and why do anything and the motivations he has for becoming a doctor so it's actually a pretty wide-ranging conversation and easily as i said one of my favorite interviews of the year now just a few quick words before we get started i would love to get your support on humans of magic the project so if you have not had the chance please follow us on twitter and instagram both accounts can be found at Humans of Magic, one word. We also have a new Patreon, patreon.com slash humans of magic. If you want to join our exclusive Discord community, you want me to help review your podcast or content, happy to do that through the Discord and the Patreon. I have switched to a weekly release format. So Humans of Magic is always going to be free. It's always going to be a labor of love, but the Patreon is going to go a long way to cover the additional intensity of the workload and i'm really happy to do weekly episodes i want to get more humans and magic content out so your support is always appreciated the phenomenal music you hear in this episode and every episode of humans and magic is supplied by Kupla. that's spelled k-u-p-l-a Kupla is an absolutely fantastic musician he's a magic player and you can find all of his music on all the streaming platforms, including Spotify and SoundCloud. Definitely give him a follow on Twitter as well, Kupla Sound, and uh, tell him Humans and Magic said hi. Great to talk to you today. I'm here with, uh, is it Tariq or Tariq? Yeah, everybody asked me that. It's uh, Tariq. Yeah, it's, it's Tariq, but Tariq is probably my most commonly, you know, 
assumed name, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's kind of like, um, you know, when I was younger, growing up in Canada, I didn't have so much awareness about pronunciation because I didn't, I felt like I grew up Canadian, not even Chinese. So it's like, I would pronounce people's last names wrong. Like, you know, W-A-N-G, it would be like Wang instead of Wong. Now that I've lived in China for a while, it's like I'm much more, or maybe just growing up, I'm much more conscious about pronouncing people's names properly because it doesn't take that much effort. So I think it's probably better to do it right. So Tariq, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Hope you're doing well. How are you doing? Tariq. 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 Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I know. It's a, and to be fair, it's nobody's fault because most African-Americans that have my name, for example, they, they say Tariq. And I only say Tariq because it is an Arabic name and my family you know, background is Arabic. So like my grandmother growing up, you know, spoke Arabic, was fluent. So Tariq, Tariq, Tariq. But everywhere in society, the people that spell my name the same way go by Tariq. So it's like this constant thing where I'm fighting, you know, the common pronunciation versus like what my Arabic kind of upbringing was. Um, it's like... Um, I guess it's like you said, it's like Wang and, and Wong, but uh, yeah, it's Tariq. So like my coach growing up used to call me Rick. You just kind of put a TA in front of that. Yeah. Did you like that? I mean, I remember having my PE teacher call me Jimmy or Jim, and I was just like, wow, I've never heard that before. You know what's funny is like at the time, like growing up, I didn't care because like I was trying to fit in like when I was younger. Now I kind of make it a point, especially in like a professional setting to correct people if they, you know, say my name wrong because yeah. it's my name. It's, how about, how about your last name? I'm going to, before Patel. I kill myself. Okay. Patel. Yeah. But Patel, I mean, have yeah. you gotten people mixed up on your last name as well? Or is that easier? No, Patel's so common, right? It's like, like there's literally millions of Patels because Indians traditionally didn't have last names. It wasn't until the British uh, colonized uh, India, um, they forced people to kind of take a last name and Patel just kind of literally means landowner. So I think anybody who owned land at some point and when the British was over there took the last name Patel. So you will go around, you know, anywhere. And if there's a brown population, like half of them will be named Patel. It's like Smith for brown people. Okay. Or maybe like shoemaker or something like I, I hear sometimes yeah. like literal and it's like, yeah, that's probably what they were doing in their family lineage. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, it's, it's good that your family traditionally historically owned land, I guess. It's always better to be a landowner than not, right? <laughs> I guess so. I don't think we own any more. So. Uh, yeah. So if I understand correctly, you are currently in Florida, right? Yeah. I'm uh, currently in Orlando, Florida, like 20 minutes out of Disney World, not even. So happiest place in the world. And of course, uh, we talked a bit about before recording, but you're from, from Canada or a town near Toronto. Is that right? Yeah, I'm originally born and raised in Milton, Ontario, actually, which is uh, my friends always give me crap about this. But it, it used to be a small farming town about 30 minutes uh, west of Toronto. Uh, I haven't been there in about 10 years, almost eight, nine years. Been a while. 2014, 2015 is when I left. So uh, but apparently it's blown up, you know, it's gotten to hundreds of thousands of people just kind of swallowed up by Mississauga and it's just become kind of the conglomerate of uh, the GTA region. But uh, yeah, I still think of myself as a Canadian born and raised in, in small town Milton Campbellville. And that's where I grew up for, you know, 20 years or so. What about after the 20 years, did your family move to Toronto or somewhere else? 
No. So my, my family's still there. You know, we kind of moved houses within the town, but my dad uh, owned a local business in the town and my mom kind of worked as a pharmaceutical rep. So she was always driving around. Um, once I graduated high school, I actually went up to Waterloo, which is a, a city, like it's basically a college town, uh, even further west and more rural than when I was where I was. And that's kind of where I met some of my long-term magic friends uh, that I still kind of play with to this day. You know, we're talking like Edgar Megalays, um, you know, Joel Repta, who's, who's playing Flesh and Blood with me now. Uh, and then some of the other people um, that quite literally are still on the grind uh, to this day. And I still talk to on a daily basis. Yeah. For those who are not Canadian listening to this, um, like Waterloo is really famous for being across the street from... Uh, rim research in motion aka the blackberry company like if any i'm gonna i'm dating myself right now but like that's where that's where it happened like canada is very well known for nortel and blackberry basically i think i don't know there might be more along the way and i this is a total interjection i know you're probably not in tech but you're a doctor but uh i just wanted to mention that to give some context to people who would be like you know what <laughs> where is waterloo or uh what's that about so yeah yeah, no, even when I was there, like, you're not dating yourself at all, because it was super, well, maybe I'm just old, but it was super vogue, you know, everybody that was in that kind of computer science, engineering kind of field, or even business, you know, one of the main co-op jobs you could get or, or internships into a main job was at, uh, you know, BlackBerry. So uh, I still have memories, you know, I don't know, I haven't been there in a while you know, did they go under? Are they still around? I, I don't know. I'd have to ask somebody who recently went to Waterloo. I'm not 100% sure. They might still be around. I think they tried to resurrect BlackBerry a few years back, like try to make new models. But I think that era is kind of long past. It's kind of like being a Nokia right now. It's like who's using a Nokia phone or a BlackBerry phone, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but tension aside, I mean, what you're, you're in Florida now, or I'm sorry, you're in Orlando, Florida now, and you're, you're, pra you're practicing MD, is that right? Yeah, so I'm in my third year of residency. Um, I'm a family medicine physician, uh, so focusing in outpatient care. Uh, I'm currently finishing up uh, my third year, and I'm actually graduating in about uh, a month or so. So I'm going to go off into the real world and be my own uh, practicing physician. And uh, for those of you that don't know how the kind of medical system works is we do, you know, our normal undergrad uh, do about four years of med school as a med student. And then we do what we call three years of residency where we are full MDs. We have prescribing privileges, uh, but we're basically in training. So we work under what we call attending physicians and we work in the hospital in an outpatient setting and wherever they basically need us in the hospital system. And at the end of the, you know, depending on your specialty, it can be three, five, seven, eight years. Uh, sometimes uh, you get your full designation and then you go off into the world on your own. You no longer need uh, the checks and balances of, of those above you. So almost done, almost graduated, looking forward to it. So you're looking forward to it. You're mostly pretty happy with your career choice of being a doctor or family physician? Yeah, no, it was, it's been a long road. Um, I just turned 30 uh, earlier this year, or I guess almost last year now, I guess. So I'm 30, but uh, I was reflecting back on it and on, you know, the weird uh, dichotomy on how, you know, it's both been absolutely flying by. You know, when I look back, I, I kind of look at myself still as an undergrad uh, student or even as a high school student. And then, you know, how long every day felt going through it. You know, there's 24 hour shifts at the hospital. 36 hour shifts sometimes 
where I'd be like this, this day's never ending. Like, how am I getting through this? But then it's funny when you look back on it, you're like, holy cow, like the time 10 years flew by. Yeah. Yeah. I think I do have a few doctor friends back home in Vancouver and yeah, you guys don't really start your careers until you're in your thirties. That's quite an investment in your life and your career, right? Because most people will be like a software engineer might be like working at 22, maybe even earlier if they have a co-op job and stuff like that. So. Yeah, it's, it's actually unreal. I have my best friend, his name is Madison. We met uh, when we were six years old, we went to the same elementary school. So first grade. Um, and I still remember it. Like he was the, the guy that originally taught me how to play Magic the Gathering. Uh, we still play Dungeons and Dragons together to this day. You know, me and my, my other friend, Jeffrey, who I've known since grade three, uh, we still get on uh, Roll Top Simulator every week and we play, you know, D&D uh, games every week. But he was a finance guy. He was a double, you know, finance uh, math major uh, at Waterloo Laurier. And uh, he graduated and immediately went into working. Like we're talking 2021 or whatever. And he was like a genius too. Like he graduated a year early from university. So I think he was like even younger. Oh, like he skipped grades. Yeah. yeah, he skipped a year in high school. And then he graduated a year early uh, in university. So I think he literally graduated like when I was in second year or something or third year, like ridiculously fast. Yeah. Uh, gets a job, had kids at like 21, uh, got married, had kids. So his daughter now is older than we were when we first met. And whenever I go and see him or I see her, her name's Harmony over, over Zoom, it absolutely blows my mind because it's like, like we were that age. And I, I still have memories of, you know, playing games with him yeah. at such a young age. And, and there now you have this offspring that is like walking and talking and knows how to form complete sentences. And it just makes me realize, you know, you know, we're, we're, we're old, James. <laughs> we're not young anymore. It's, yeah, it's crazy. I know I, I'm seeing my friends, you know, have like two, three kids around me. Like I, I'm married. I don't have kids yet. We have two cats, which is obviously not even remotely on the same level. I love my cats, but let's be real. They're not kids. Right. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like you're seeing this like little mini me version of my friends and it's just like, it's surreal. Right. <laughs> but, uh, just, just in terms of, I want to know, like, what's, what was your original motivation for committing yourself to being a medical professional? Was it like, because I, I kind of, for me, like when I interface with friends or people who are doctors, there's usually like two reasons, right? One is you really want to make a difference in this field. And number two is it runs in the family. There was probably like other reasons, but for me, it's always coming down to like one or two or both. So what, what's your main motivation for like committing a big part of your life to doing this? Yeah, no, that's a really interesting question. And it's one, you know, you get always probed about throughout medical school, throughout interviews and, and, and going into the field. And, you know, now that I don't have to lie or embellish or, you know, do anything else like that, I can honestly say it's just, it's hard to describe something that you just want to do, you know, like, when you want a piece of cake, for example, you know, it's not enough to just say you're craving something sweet, right? It's not enough to say you want to be a physician just because you want to help people. Cause you can help people doing, you know, hundreds and thousands of different things. And I, I don't know why it always kind of just appealed to me. Um, I've been around the medical community, um, you know, starting from a young age, one of my first jobs was I was working as a pharmacy tech uh, locally in town, just kind of giving out meds and, you know, pharmacists do a, a ton of stuff with, with uh, primary care and, and patient care. So that was kind of my first exposure to it. 
And then I've always just been a science nerd, you know, my whole life, like absolutely love physics uh, to the point where, you know, I almost got a minor. I think it was like one or two classes off from, from just getting a minor and then only a couple more from, you know, maybe getting a double major in physics. So I've just loved science from the start and I've always been active, uh, you know, in the community. When I was in Waterloo, I was uh, volunteering at the soup kitchen there. It's called the Ray of Hope. I wonder if it's still alive. It was just off King Street for those people from Waterloo. Um, and it was just like, I loved it. Right. So it, it just really combined my passions of being very like esoteric scientifically and, and just working with people. Cause I tried the research gig for a bit, right. In undergrad, I, I volunteered with my profs and I did work in their lab and, you know, I, theory and research is fun, but it, it does have its very, very dull moments when you're, when you're actually going through it and collecting the data and when you spend, you know, weeks on a project and the data just looks like nonsense and you just made an error somewhere. And so it's very like frustrating, can be very isolating at times. And I feel like maybe I'm a little bit bipolar in my desires in some ways. Like I really desire that cerebral aspect of uh, certain things. And then um, I also desire like really kind of connecting and, and talking to people and medicine uh, really kind of offer that to me. So, so I think there's a part of if I may generalize or just based on hearing you talk about flesh and blood in the past or other things, it's like, I know that you are someone who enjoys the intellectual challenge of doing certain things, whether it's a, a gaming pursuit or maybe it's your studies or understanding the world. And it also sounds like you are, are, can be a social person. So it's like, you don't want to do just the pure research things or maybe just only dealing with other researchers. Like you kind of want to cast your wide cast your net maybe a little wider than that i don't know if this is like me ex like reading into stuff too much but no yeah you're you're absolutely right jack of all trades master of none so <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what they say and you know it's funny because that's kind of how i ended up in family medicine as well as a, as a general practitioner so i'm going to kind of go a little tangent on you and, and just kind of explain because it wasn't you know the easiest process like the whole medical school and and, you know, choosing my specialty and, and all that. Um, but for, for those that don't know, medical training is very uh, intense, um, to, to say the least. Uh, have you ever seen the movie Whiplash, the one with the, the drummer and, uh, you know, it's one of my about, favorite movies. Uh, I think I must have watched it about four or five times. All right. So what's the guy's name? Fletcher, the teacher? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Jonah Jameson from Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, you know, when I watch that movie, it's very indicative of what a lot of medical training is like. And when I first started, I actually wanted to do surgery mm -hmm. and, um, all my rotations, you know, I was over at Hackensack, uh, were in surgery. I was doing nothing but it for hours and hours on end. And that is something that you live and breathe. Like I fell off gaming completely during that time. You know, I was literally in the hospital doing two three calls, you know, a week as a there's no way you could do crazy. anything else but be in the hospital right just to oh, focus. yeah 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 and uh i remember one day um i was rounding at like 4 a.m or something you know i got to the hospital at 3 30 i started my rounds at, at four and in walked my you know 60 something year old attending physician and he started rounding with me at like 4 30 or something and i remember just having this moment of being like what am i doing with my life because this get is going to be my I life right it. yeah yeah yeah, but I, I liked it. Don't get me wrong. I, I enjoyed it, but I didn't live to cut. And I think that was my moment where 
I realized that, you know, surgery wasn't for me. And then I kind of dabbled in, in various different things. And I eventually came to, you know, primary care, family medicine, uh, you know, this kind of thing. And, you know, it's medical students and I, it's actually funny, never, never ended up getting along because the, there's a very <laughs> certain type of personality. Like, you know, how engineers have certain yeah. types of personality or computer yeah. software people have certain types of personality. So medical students are just hyper competitive people by nature. And don't get me wrong. I am hyper competitive as well, but there's a big division in the medical community that I didn't like either. Um, and for those that don't know how kind of doctors choose their specialty, it's, it's a very weird process, but we basically all medical students, no matter where you went, where you're from, as long as you're practicing in the U S you take one test, it's called step one. Um, that used to basically determine what your specialty was. Now they've kind of like changed the system a bit and step two weighs more, but it's like a giant SAT. It's like one standardized test. And what you got in that test basically determined like where you were going to kind of end up specialty wise. And because medicine in America for better, or for worse, I'll let the people decide for me, I think it's for the worst. It's very financially driven. And a lot of the higher specialties were more in demand for medical students because it, it paid more, right? And therefore, you needed a higher score on this one test in your first or second year of medical school in order to then will dictate your next like five, six years of your life that will then get you the job that you want to go out and do it. So for me, you know, I worked my butt off because, you know, I wanted to be that plastic surgeon. I wanted to be that radiologist. I got, you know, a 250 or, you know, I guess people don't know what that means, but I got a very good score and I set up my whole life to do surgery. You know, my parents were like, great, you're going to do this. And I still remember like when, when I had that aha moment at the hospital, I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do surgery. And everybody who knew me at the time was like, you're miserable. Like, why are you doing this to yourself? And I have to say that was the single greatest decision of my life. Cause you know, sure. You know, you make slightly less money. And I'm saying that with air quotations, but like, to me, it's like, it never was about money, right? Like I'm a very simple person. I play games, you know, free to play games online or board games to do with my <laughs> friends. Like, what do I, I don't spend much money. So, yeah. you know, it was, it was a very interesting process when I look back over the last eight years or so and where I went from a, a biochem major to, you know, wanting to do surgery to now being in my last uh, you know, year of family medicine and then going through COVID, which was just absolutely unreal mm. as a trainee. So yeah, here we are today. It's also just really, I'm, I'm sort of picking something random from what you said, but what really mm -hmm. resonates with me is just that if it also seems like you, you have a mindset that other medical students can't relate with whatsoever, because if they're all hyper-competitive and they grew up on like, I want to get the highest score possible on the test and that's what I am, like my dream job is to be a surgeon or whatever, because they've been told their whole life that's what you should do, or they've told themselves that it's that inner, inner talk and then they probably can't fathom how someone like you are qualified to do that. But you, you just say, I choose not to because for my own sanity or for my own well-being or because I see myself in 30 years not wanting to do that or just burning out or whatever. Like I also find I, I would imagine it's really hard for people to relate to you as well in, the, in that profession. Like either you're outside of the medical profession, in which case, like someone like me, I can only I can't fully relate to it. But people who are in your profession also can't relate to you. So. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you find that or am I just like reading into it too much? No, that's, you're very intuitive. I'll say that there's a very toxic culture in medicine that I, you know, me, my colleagues and everybody's trying to change. And I think the newer generation is trying to change it, but you know, there's a very big hierarchy where 
you know, surgeons especially will look down on other specialties and those specialties will look down on other specialties. And then right at the bottom is primary care. But the medical system is so broken in America that it should not be like that, right? For every dollar you spent in primary care prevention, it's so much cheaper to prevent a disease than it is to cure it. And the whole system does not understand that. And the, the incentive system in America is such that we let people get to the brink of death and then we bring them back. Like I will, I will say, you know, it's weird to think about because, you know, people look at the stats and, and this and that and America has the, you know, middle uh, of the world healthcare system. But if you have money, there is no place in the world. And I'm telling, talking from firsthand experience, you'd rather be than the United States of America. Like uh, the things I've seen and been a part of, you know, transplant surgeries and so forth, it's just, it's unreal what the, the cream of the crop and the smartest people, you know, can do in this country. But the fact is, is that we don't invest enough into, you know, primary care resources to prevent, you know, people from getting to these states that require these like miraculous treatments and, and stuff. And it's, it's sad because like you picked up on, you know, there's this hierarchy where like primary care kind of gets crapped on by internal medicine and then, you know, surgery craps on internal medicine and it just keeps going up the, up the chain, but it doesn't need to be like that. You know, people like me are trying to change this. I, we can talk about this topic literally for hours. Cause I have oh, yeah. a fantastic idea. There's, there's this revolution that's happening in America right now, which is called direct primary care. And I'll, I'll just give you guys a little taste of, you know, where I'm kind of headed in my future, but for a nominal fee of like $50 a month, like I will just be your physician. So, you know, an average primary care physician carries around two to 3000 people uh, rostered at any one time. And if we all collect like a subscription base from each patient, you know, it works out to be that there's enough for me to pay for certain lab tests, for x-rays, for whatever, you know, out of pocket because you're paying me the subscription. And at the same time, you can get disaster insurance, which is like really cheap as well. And for like, you know, less than what you're already paying for your full insurance, you can get a complete package uh, and we can cut out the middleman, which is the insurance company. But that's a different topic for a different day. I'm extremely passionate about primary care and, and, you know, the changes that need to be made, especially in the United States uh, healthcare system. But uh, you're absolutely right. There's this toxic culture in medicine where, you know, if you're not doing the most lucrative, high paying specialty that you can possibly do based on your grades mm-hmm. and your rotations, then you are a failure as a medical student. Like you would only ever go into XYZ specialty because you had to. Yeah. And I just think that's, that's toxic and absolutely wrong. It's like, Dr. Patel, you're not doing liposuction people. What are you even doing? Right? Yeah. <laughs> you joke, but it's, it's, it's literally that. Yeah. Like you joke, but it's like, why are you not doing ophthalmology with like a 250? Like, why are you doing it's, it's literally that you joke, but it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no. I, I, yeah. I, I know where I'm going with this. And I yeah. gotta say, I, this is me leading the conversation to this. So I recently read a book. I can't remember what the name of the book was, but it's like, uh, Oh, Atua Gawande being mortal. Do you know this book? I don't know. Okay. Well, basically the premise of the book is that he's a he's a doctor. So he but he's basically talking about aging and how the medical field treats aging. So it goes to what you're saying about how we tend to think there's a solution for everything where we can save people when it's too late. When in mm-hmm. fact it's really more about prevention, right? Like you gotta you gotta not let them get to that state. And also about how it's a very profound book. So for anyone listening to this, I would really highly recommend you read this book, even though we're not, we're supposed to be talking about magic or flesh and blood or whatever, but being mortal is re- like this book. It's really about like how you, how people, how we view death today. It's like, we view death as like not an inevitability anymore. We think we can pump people with like medicine or always try to save somebody who 
we should just let them pass peacefully or whatever. And it's, it also talks about the history of uh, elder care and just like taking care of older people and the, the history of like the um, caregiving or like the, the assisted living and things like that. And the, his, the complete history of it. It's like, it's actually quite young too. It's only like a few hundred years of history. And you just get this inside look into how things got to the way they are today. And really makes you think about like what needs to change like number one prevention but number two don't think that people like you, you know what i'm saying it's like it's like people should have make proper sensible choices on how to live or how to end their life and it shouldn't be about like you know try to save them at all costs so mm-hmm. um this is getting into wholly different territory but um i think it's a really yeah, profound book i love it no it, it's true And just to expand on that, you know, one of the greatest things I've learned from becoming a medical professional and something I didn't fully appreciate when I was a kid, you know, when grandma passed away, I asked my mom, like, why did grandma die? And she said, oh, she's old, right? People don't pass away from old age. Nobody dies of old age. Everybody dies of something. And this is a conversation I have to have with my patients almost daily, um, especially when I work with the geriatric population. But something at the end of your life will get you, whether it's a heart attack, a stroke, you know, sepsis, cancer, whatever, everybody dies of something. And it's a very sobering fact. And I think one of the greatest things you can do for yourself and for your family is to understand that, you know, when you or a loved one go, it will be for something. And there will always be a theoretical treatment out there. But you know, when it's your time, you have to kind of weigh the pros and cons and, and your quality of life when, when it's at that time. And now this book sounds very interesting and it sounds like almost right up my alley for these kind of discussions. So I'm definitely going to read it uh, once uh, we, we finish this talk here today. Yeah. So uh, switching gears a little bit, we, we, <laughs> <laughs> we definitely have to talk a bit about, um, so by the way, the, the podcast is called Humans of Magic, but it's only very <laughs> nominally about magic because I want to talk to you more about just your mindset in certain things. Like the reason why I really enjoyed the conversation up to now is just because I'm, I'm trying to get a glimpse of who you are as a, as a person. I think it's really important because I think, I think there's a tendency to just compartmentalize ourselves in life. It's like, I'm a gamer or I'm an ex or I'm a runner or I'm a doctor. That's not how the world works. So um, first of all, I just want to admittedly, this is for myself as well. I know you're very big into flesh and blood. I think it's only been the past year or so that you got onto the highest level of competition. Can you describe, okay, two things. First of all, can you describe flesh and blood for someone who's never played flesh and blood? Like maybe someone that's played magic, but not this game. Yeah. Yeah. So for those of you who have played magic, you may be familiar with a card called uh, Lava Spike. And you may be also familiar with a card, a card called uh, Healing Self, which is Gain Three Life. So, in the simplest form possible, Magic or sorry, Flesh and Blood is a game of Lava Spikes versus Healing Selves. And when and where you use your Lava Spikes or Healing Selves is how the game's dictated. And it has one of the greatest things where it is the start of a new game. So, just like when Magic was new, the mechanics are very basic, but they're not very well understood. So it leaves a lot of room for self-expression and you can kind of figure it out on your own terms without having a lot of heuristics and, you know, past things kind of bogging you down. But uh, in a quick one, you know, five word uh, sentence, lava spikes versus healing selves for the magic players out there. That's flesh and blood. (laughs) Okay. So 
I'm trying to read a bit into what you just said, which is like, first of all, like deal three damage versus gain three life. That's kind of like the perfect uh, yin versus yang dichotomy, right? So it sounds like from right. a strategic perspective, you can decide like maybe even in the course of a match, like whether to deal three right now this turn or heal three this turn. Is that right? That's correct. So every card, unlike magic, so in magic, everything is very... Um, binary i guess it's it's a, literally a resource like a land or it's a spell uh in some capacity and I, I i know like magic has lands that utility and they do stuff blah 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 but for most things the the, the resources and the spells they're they're mostly separate uh in flesh and blood every game or every card excuse me has the potential to both be a resource card so to be pitched is the term we use or to be used as mana mm -hmm. or to be played as the spell at its face value and every card usually comes in three forms. They come as either a Black Lotus, uh, a Soul Ring, which is make two resources, or a Lotus Petal, which is uh, make one resource. Mm -hmm. And they are inversely uh, inverse inversely as strong as how much mana they make. So the more mana they make, the weaker they are. The less mana they make, you know, the stronger they are. Um, and so throughout the course of a turn, um, you have to decide, you know, which one of my cards am I using for resources? Which one of my cards am I using for uh, damage or to progress the game state? And um, not only that, but when you use a card as a resource, it doesn't go to a graveyard. It goes to the bottom of your deck to be drawn later. So you have to be managing your resources, not just this turn, but in 20 turns or, or 15 turns from now. Because if you only start using your weak cards uh, as resources and use up all your strong cards immediately. If the game doesn't immediately end, when you come back around to draw your, what we call the second cycle of the, your deck a second time, all you're left with in your deck is, is a bunch of weak cards. So you have to be constantly managing, not just the turn cycle that you're on, but 10, 15 turn cycles down the line. And it, it's quite a fun game in that, in that respect. So I'm sensing that this game has much less variance than magic. Is that true? That is true. And it's both a gift and a curse. So one of the things that this game is kind of running into right now is that we're finding very hyper-polarized uh, uh, matchups across the board where because you see so many cards a turn, which is, you know, at the end of your turn, you always drop to four cards. So when you're having a 60-card deck, you know, you only really need to kind of go through uh, uh, 15 turns to, to draw your, your entire deck. And you start with such a high life total, 40, that, you know, it's very likely that you're going to see at least one cycle of your deck or 75% of your deck. And if there is a recurring positive game pattern, you will likely see it. And if there's a recurring negative game pattern, you will also likely experience mm -hmm. it. And what that's tended to do is hyperpolarize certain matchups um, because, you know, so certain things are just inevitable. So it's both a, both a gift and a curse. But on the flip side of that was when the format's really good and really balanced, you have such uh, an opportunity to express yourself as a player mm -hmm. and to take advantage of every little micro decision because the variance is so reduced. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's let's be real. Like, I'm not anywhere on the same level as uh, Paulo Vitor PV as a Magic player, but I think there's some situations in Magic where if I have the same group of cards, grip of cards as he has, or I chose to keep the same hand he has. The games kind of play themselves out like in magic maybe it's also because it's so entrenched at this point what you should do with your mana your tempo strategy or what your deck is constructed to do that i mean obviously polar vitor can find those one percent situations that i can't 
But over the course of most turns in Magic, I feel like as a Magic player, they kind of play themselves out. But it sounds like in Flesh and Blood, that's not the case because there's such like micro complexity in every every decision or even how like the three moto modes you play a card a certain way and and thinking about how it cycles back 20 turns later it sounds it, it sounds like there's a lot more just a lot more decisions in flesh and blood right yeah it, it's a beautiful game it's like art in some ways and i think the fact that it's not fully explored makes this so much more fun because there probably will come a time and day when you know, these can mechanics are flushed out and there'll be an optimal, yeah. you know, people just know thing. you're supposed to do with that. That's an optimal play right. or something. Yeah. But right now we're in that beautiful early phase where like in magic, for example, people start weak because they can only play one mana, two spells, two, two, three, four, and they get stronger as the week, the game goes on. And flush blood is the complete opposite because you start with armor and everything's at, at full health and you actually start the game at your strongest. And as the game progresses, it actually slows down because people have less and less resources and equipment to use. So it actually works in the reverse way of magic. And, you know, like you said, you're, you're absolutely right. And when I used, I, I played it, I still do play magic, right? And I still played a, a ton of it and I grinded it. And I often used to say, you know, magic events for me and probably for most people were decided before you played round one it was the deck you registered and then going through it was a matchup yeah. playing the tournaments mm-hmm. was just kind of going through the motions and hoping you ran better and it didn't royally mess up in, in any capacity but i felt like the majority of my edge in, in magic was you know finding the deck you know when i played hogak for the first time in legacy my friends still like to give crap to me about it but like nobody knew about it and i feel like i had such a deck edge uh in those back-to-back tournaments that that i ended up top eighting um, so to me, it's like the deck edge was so much more important in magic and in flesh and blood, it's like, we could be on the exact same list. And, you know, this has happened over, you know, the last couple of events, but like the way you kind of approach it makes or breaks, you know, you know, how the games kind of play out. And, and it's like an expression of, of how you use stuff. Like, it's very much like sports in that way where everybody's kind of given a stick in a pot or a basketball, right? There's no advantage to like, you know back in that factor but it's like you know if i went against lebron james he would he would school me and it's it's very much like that right now in flesh and blood where you know we could be in a mirror match but how we express ourselves with how we manage certain resources can make or break the difference that sounds absolutely fascinating and my next question is going to be like what made you commit so hard to flesh and blood it sounds like you're giving me a lot of the answers already but like maybe i just want to hear in your own words like why flesh and blood because you got a, you got you're a busy guy you're practicing uh, or soon to be, you know, full-time physician and whatnot. Like what, what attracts you to the game? Cause it's quite a, you, you're, you're really deep in flesh and blood. Like what, what's the, what's the main draw? Um, so I, I tend to go deep in, into all the games I play. Um, so it's not just flesh and blood. I'm a very like hundred or zero kind of guy. I'm not the kind of guy that can, as you said, you know, no pick, chill, right? <laughs> yeah. I have, I have no chill and it's just unfortunate, but it's like, if I do something, I can't just do it for fun. You know, like when I play, and it's one of the reasons I could never really get fully into board games is because my, my best friend who I, I talked about earlier, he's a huge board game enthusiast. Like we'll go to Gen Con and we'll play every board game under the sun. But whenever I go to his place, he like brings out a new board game. And then, you know, I finally start to get it. The game ends. He's like, okay, let's go play this next one. And that's just not who I am. It's like, so no, like, I want to try to figure out how yeah. I can do better again in this game. Right. Exactly. And to me, the fun is in the optimization, the, the, the beauty in anything, I think, is is perfection. You know, watching people play at the highest level 
in their respective fields is, is almost like watching art to me. That's one of the reasons I can't watch like NCAA football, like basketball and stuff. I have to watch the pros or whatever. But anyway, so when I do something, I like to go all in or I, I wouldn't do it at all. So um, to answer your question, how I got into flesh and blood, um, you know, COVID happened. Um, you know, hobbies were on the down low, you know, I was working like crazy and, uh, you know, magic, the competitive scene was kind of, you know, in this weird kind of limbo situation. And for me, I like competing, you know, um, it's just, it's just fun. Like I said, you know, pushing yourself to do good or, you know, to find an optimal strategy in a competitive setting to me has always been fun. So I was playing magic online. It was kind of whatever. Um, and then I heard about flesh and blood and they, they just released like a million dollars in prizes over X tournaments. And I kind of started reading more and more and, and, I, and I saw, and it was like, Oh, look, Orlando nationals uh, or nationals in America is going to be in Orlando, like literally 20 minutes from where I live now. So like, okay, this is fantastic. It gave me, you know, a set of events. Uh, there's a grand prix in Dallas, which is a very cheap flight from where I live in Orlando. It was like literally $50 round trip or $80 round trip. will get you there and back. So I'm like, this is perfect. I have a, you know, a GP equivalent, a Grand Prix equivalent, they're called callings. Uh, so a Grand Prix for, for those of you that only play Magic and don't play uh, Flesh and Blood um, was in Dallas. And then I had a bunch of PTQs or uh, what they call like road to nationals to qualify for nationals. And then I had the national event itself uh, around Halloween. So I'm like, okay, uh, we're going to play in these PTQs. And that was unfortunately right when Delta happened, uh, mm. you know, the summer of last year, almost a year to this date. And I cannot tell you, it was like literal hell on earth in Florida. Cause like, they don't believe in masks and, you know, they barely yeah. believe the virus is real here. And we had like people in the hallways, you know, I was doing ICU shifts, like, just like it was the wild west. It was absolutely crazy. And I missed that entire qualifier season and it really kind of bummed me out. And uh, I actually emailed LSS being like, Hey, you know, I have a lot of experience in card games. I got my deck, my cards, you know, I really want I'm to I'm sorry. I don't, these. I don't know the acronym LSS. Oh, sorry. Legend Story Studios. It's the uh, company that makes uh, Flesh and Blood. Um, so I actually emailed them being like, hey, you know, this is the situation. My job prohibited me because I was working like literally seven days, uh, you know, had one day off, then seven days back on again. Like just crazy work. So like, I couldn't make it because this Delta happened. Is there any way, you know, I could get a, a Nationals invite or is there another way to qualify? And they're like, no, unfortunately, the only way to do it is you know, by topping a Grand Prix equivalent and then using what they call a Pro Tour invite and, and qualifying for nationals. So I said, okay, so, you know, the set got released, uh, one of, um, you know, one of their draftable sets uh, in September. And I remember when going to pre-release, you know, I played it, got into it, uh, met a bunch of the guys locally, started drafting it, flew out to Dallas for my very first event ever. Um, and I came ninth in the Grand Prix. You know, I missed my one slot, one spot. I'm like, oh, you know, maybe it wasn't meant to be. And there was actually another event in Cincinnati the very next weekend. And, you know, I wasn't, I hadn't booked a flight. It was the week before, you know, it was a little bit more expensive. Yeah, but you were so and, close, right? Yeah. yeah, I was so close. And Tannen Grace, who a uh, prolific magic player uh, and now commentator for Legendary Studios. And he does all the, the commentating for these events, uh, kind of convinced me. He was like, you know, just go. Like you, you played so well, you know, you did so well, you know, that will probably be the one. And, you know, I was just like, all right, screw it. You know, let's do it. So I booked the flight and I ended up coming second. And then I used that invite to qualify me for nationals, which again, people told me I was crazy to do because why would you waste a pro tour invite on, on nationals? Right. 
And I was like, I don't care. I just wanted to play. And then I, you know, the rest is history. I ended up winning nationals and, and, and going from there. So absolutely no chill. Like, yeah. I, I think a lot of, a lot of other people might just be like, yeah, uh, you know, with my current personal situation, I'm just going to put flesh and blood aside for a bit, but you're just like problem solving. Like how do, how do I still get on the train? Right. How do I still yeah. like, I've committed all this time and effort and learning. So like, how do I, how do I get there? Like, it sounds like you're a very goal-based person, right? Yeah. And, and that's a, both a flaw and, you know, a strength of mine, I'd say in some ways, like I really enjoy chasing the carrot at the end of the stick as weird as that sounds. And it's, it's funny because, you know, I talk to a lot of people every day, just in the nature of, of my job. And I really do think people, and this isn't just me now, but in general, when you sit still long enough, I think people start to get in a rut and I think it's always good to push yourself in, in whatever it is you do, because it gives you something to get up in the morning for, to kind of go for, and that when you finish your job, you have now something to strive for. When you have that finish to strive for, you go back to work and like this constant balance of doing work, doing something fun, doing something competitive, doing something relaxing. I think a good variety keeps the mind healthy. And, you know, I love being very goal oriented because sitting on the couch and watching Netflix, don't get me wrong, is very entertaining, but it makes you feel like crap after you do that. You know, mm-hmm. like you, you waste a whole day watching TV and I feel like, like I didn't learn anything. I didn't do anything. I'm no better than I was yesterday. And maybe, maybe that's just me, but I love the fact, like when I, when I have a very hard day, it's still very productive. Like, wow, I've learned this, this, and this, and this, or I've done this, 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 and this, and this, or, you know, I have an event in two weeks coming up. I can now practice for this. And just that that little carrot at the end of the stick, even if like, I know in a in hundred years or towards the end of my life, like I won't care that I won nationals. I won't care that I went to, you know, this and this. All I'll care about is, is the family around me. But for my day-to-day life, it's it's weird, it's a weird, you know, paradox of being human is that we care about that carrot so much, even though we know it's on a stick and it's not real. But uh yeah, I love that carrot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, hey, I love it too, man. You're talking to the choir because I'm, I'm definitely not a high level competitive magic or other game player, but whenever I play magic, I'm a, I'm a spike. If I play an event, I want to win the event. Like that's what it is. Like it's, uh, it's about the chase or even yeah. now, like I, I'm, I'm a startup person. Like I'm building my own startup. Like that's a goal that every day or every week I get up, I feel like you strive for it. Right. And to me, it's not even about like failure, quote unquote, or success anymore. It's just like that gives my life some sort of meaning. And yeah, it's really the chase. I think it's just this thing like, and, and, and I, I feel the same way too. Like I read, um, oh gosh, this is not a book club, but um, the, the book Sapiens, right. I read it a few years ago and it was just like, it's just a really depressing reminder of how small we are as like humans, like, because in the, in the grand scheme of things, even Barack Obama is not, is like a speck of dust in the universe, right? Yeah. So what, what are we yeah. really here for? Like really nothing, right? Like, so I sort of came to the conclusion that really the only purpose of life is just to create the next of kin, uh, your next generation, but that's totally tangential. Um, <laughs> but, but it's like, why do anything, right? There's always this sort of conflict I have with myself, a struggle, which is like, you're, you're struggling between, I want to do things to get to that carrot versus complete nihilism because when you really think about it if you really use first principles and think about it 
why do anything right why even record this podcast right like why talk to james like why why do i want to interview you like because in the moment it's fun in the moment i enjoy the fuck out of this Mm -hmm. and and that's why i do it and it's so irrational but anyway that's a very long-winded response what you're saying like i'm totally i'm totally with you man on that on that wavelength so and, you know, obviously I'm going to be biased here, but I honestly, it sounds like you figured out life and it's weird to think, but it's like people, I think that understand it and it's not something you can verbalize, but it's like understanding that the whole game is a sham, but both enjoying the sham at the same yeah. time. is like yeah. the secret to life in my opinion, but that's neither here nor there. We can talk philosophy. Yeah. And the, the, the slot machine is, 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 uh, <laughs> is a false choice, but I still like pulling on, on, oh, yeah. on the lever or like um, exactly. the guy in the, the matrix, right. Who says, you know, I know the steak is not real, but mm-hmm. I still enjoy the steak. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. I'm yep. right with you there. Yeah. So, you know, going back to a bit on, on flesh and blood, I mean, how, I want to kind of draw some parallels here. Like how, in general, how do you feel like you level up in a game, like from starting from zero, like let's, let's take flesh and blood as an example, but I know you also have notable examples, whether it's medicine or other games, but like, how do you Mm -hmm. think about the process of improving from zero or starting from zero? So my personal process is starting with with first principles. And for for those listening that aren't familiar with the concept, a first principle is a set of, um, you know, rules, let's just call them, that can't be deduced um, or, you know, empirically derived from anything else. They are simply just true facts of the game or project or scientific entity that which you're studying. So, um, you know, in, in Magic the Gathering, it would be like, you know, you can play one land a turn or you draw one card at the start of your turn, like quite literally the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you build strategy from it because everything's built on it, right? Like you take a game like hockey or soccer, you know, there's only one thing, like there's the rules like offsides and so forth. And then it's put the ball or object in the net. And, and you think about the complex, rich nature of strategies that have evolved in sports and so forth, but they're all derived on the first principles of like, don't go offside or put the ball in the net so when i first started playing flesh and blood it it was like no game i've ever played before in terms of trading card games because i was you know first introduced to the Yu-Gi-Oh card game when i was a kid and then i I played magic and both those games kind of operated very similarly you know you you start with a a set of cards and you draw only one card a turn and more cards is better and you know you lose your cards and now you're a card disadvantage like they all kind of revolve around card advantage tempo you know board presence like these concepts that people have played classic tcgs have been familiar with with years but in flesh and blood it's not like that you know the 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 board state is completely wiped clean at the end of every turn both players uh wheel of fortune or or draw four cards for lack of a better uh word at the end of their turn so nothing you did throughout that game carries over there's no permanence of the board state besides your armor and your life total so it, it works almost completely opposite as magic there's no such thing as card advantage everything is tempo which is probably the most poorly defined concept in all of trading card games you know people have gone years without fully understanding what tempo is and it's funny because this entire game is based around tempo so it's just been such a fun thing to to kind of figure out so anyways i start with first principle thinking in in whatever game I kind of play, you know. So just kind of like rules. deconstructing it down to the to the foundations or like maybe coming yeah. in without any like preconceptions about the game, right? Yes. 
And I think learning it for yourself is the most important thing you can do. Like there was content creators out there already that were doing stuff, but I, I'm a big believer that even with limited sets in magic or flesh and blood, the best way to do it is just to go in, read the cards, go in with what you know and figure everything out from there and build it yourself. Okay. I think that's a very, okay. I want to, I want to know where you get that from because I, I think a lot of people when they're learning something new for the first time, they'll just go pull up a tutorial and then they just kind of just take things at face value. Like, like you should just do this. You should do that. It sounds like when you're learning something, you try to, I want, I don't want to say actively avoid that, but that tends not to be how you go into things, right? You want to go in and just kind of come to your own conclusions and maybe try things, try things and test and, and, and use the first principles methodology. Is that true? Yeah. And, and it comes through, I think a lot of my academic background has just been in science and doing research and so forth where, you know, it's a very rigorous, you know, you, you test the theory, if it works, you continue on it. And, you know, I'm a, a lover of all things, you know, chess and, and everything like that. And I'm going, I'm, I'm going tangentially here, but, you know, heuristics have often been shown to, to be wrong, or when there's a breakthrough in something, it's because we've misunderstood something that was previously assumed. So whenever I look at a problem to be solved, I, I think the most harmful thing you can do to yourself is, is go with somebody else's dogma, because you don't know what they kind of knew or did to get to that point. So, you know, AlphaGo, for those that aren't familiar, is a, is a chess program. Um, I, I'm, I'm going tangential here, so, so bear with me, but it'll come back in full circle. But uh, there was a classical computer uh, called Stockfish that was deemed to be the best chess computer in the world for years and years and years. And the way it worked was it kind of pulled from a database of you know every human game known to man. It would quite literally uh, brute force uh, its way through kind of you know playing a game of chess and, and going to beat it. And what Google's computer did, it actually came to what I thought was a very you know, interesting novel way of approaching a problem where it would quite literally play itself and it would take seemingly random moves to, to start, right? It would just move its king like all over the board and then it would lose. And it would just assign weighted values of like, when you lose, it's bad. When you win, it's good. When you lose a piece, it's bad. When you get a piece, it's good. And the game would kind of figure itself out. And when you go and, and analyze the game of this novel computer, you know, not pulling from any human database, only pulling from itself, it does stuff that humans have thought were just incorrect for years. Like theories of chess where like, you're not supposed to move a piece more than once before you know, finishing the early game and, and stuff like that. It was just like breaking heuristics or dogma that we were just thought were immutable for, for hundreds of years in, in chess. And all of a sudden this computer is coming out and it's just absolutely destroying the strongest entity known to man and computer at the time. And I just thought that was super cool to look at. So you know, that was years ago, like 2011 or 12 or whenever that actually happened. But, you know, when I first learned that, I tried to apply it to my own self in, in everything I do. You know, I said to myself, you know, okay, there, here's a game like chess, which is, you know, already solved to like a, a huge level degree. And this thing is already figuring stuff out that, you know, we thought wasn't possible. You know, what am I missing in my own life, uh, you know, in, in science and in medicine and in, in, in ethics and whatever I do in gaming that, you know, I, you know, I'm taking for granted. And when I played StarCraft II, I played that, you know, at a semi-professional level, like super, super high level. Um, you know, I learned and I, I invented certain strategies that were very novel uh, to myself that I, I did very well in tournaments with. And then, 
in um you know other card games and and and, and again you know you apply it to flesh and blood and i i got this deck uh briar for those who follow flesh and blood um by saying to myself okay what's the rate limiting step what's you know, an action point. How do I break this? Is it mana? Is it resources? And you kind of poke and prod at the extremes and you don't go with, you know, the conventional builds because they're just doing kind of what's within the the guidelines of, of mm-hmm. what people have done before. But, uh, but that's that really, yeah. uh, I'm going to interrupt you for a second here. That's, ahead, that's yeah. really hard because, because I think life is about opportunity costs. So it's like, if you're trying to explore the Briar deck, you're not you're not tuning some existing strategy. Of course, I don't know anything about flesh and blood other than what you've told me today, but it's true for a lot of things. It's like, I could be doing this instead of that. So it, it really requires going out on a limb, like an intellectual limb to try to like go there because people are afraid of that, right? Because if you go there and you don't find anything, then you'll feel like it was a waste of time, right? Yeah. Maybe you do find something. And it's also about like, which direction? Do I explore Briar? Do I, do I, do I explore Chulain? Do I explore like, more deep like how do you how do you make those decisions you have to kill your ego and you have to admit when you're wrong right this process only works if you're able to throw your bad ideas out the window and don't get me wrong i've had tons and tons of bad ideas you know it's funny because my friends in magic for a while like i was known as like the guy that just would play wacky decks but in actuality if you looked at the decks that i actually registered in tournaments they were the most cookie cutter of cookie cutter decks like like very, very stock things, but it's never a waste to go out and test and try different things because you never know when something in this capacity, you know, you play this weird elves deck and you learn about this weird mechanic or interaction can help you when you're playing blue white control. And it's seemingly like completely different or arbitrary way. And the human brain, you know, you see this a lot in math, right? There's two equations that could mean the exact same thing right? You plug and chug them and they'll give you the exact same answer, but how you look at one and how you look at another will completely change how the human brain kind of sees it, right? We see this with, uh, with Feynman diagrams with where, how he kind of explains how like electron moves versus like just arbitrarily writing out the equation Two drastically different ways for understanding like electrons and, and particle physics between an equation and, and, a, and a Feynman diagram. So, and I think the same is true in gaming. So I never think it's a waste of time. You know, it's, if you have an idea, I think it's worth exploring, even if it hits a dead end, I do think it's something you've learned and you'll, you may use at some other point, you just can't connect the dots, you know, prospectively, you have to, you know, come across a scenario and, oh, I've had this before in this weird other scenario. This is how we kind of move forward from here. It sounds like you're also a glass half full kind of person because you're trying to find valuable takeaways no matter what. So maybe going back to a bit of what I said before, it's like there's no real failures. It's just like an opportunity to learn something because when you play the Elves deck, you're learning something about something about magic itself. So you're trying to uncover truths about the game if that if that's that's what it sounds like to me i don't know if you agree or disagree with that no i agree and at the end of the day it's fun right like not a lot of people have fun playing these janky decks you know or (laughs) these random things but it's like if it's an idea worth having and if you enjoy going down the rabbit hole for a little bit you know that's that's something worth doing and uh i'll just tell the story a little bit but you know dominic harvey a writer at starcitygames.com yes one of the uh best magic players living today in my opinion also canadian right yeah yeah also canadian so 
funny story on how we met. Uh, I was actually living in Jersey at the time. And, you know, I saw one of his deck lists. We were both playing. I was playing KCI and, and he was playing KCI. And uh, we didn't know each other at all. Like I was living in New York, New Jersey at the time. He was living in Toronto. And I actually saw one of his deck lists. And I thought to myself, like, he's doing something really, really cool here. And he went a bit down a rabbit hole. You know, whether it was right or wrong is beside the point. But I actually reached out to him and I was like, hey, you know, I throw this yearly Christmas party at my house back in Canada when I go home to visit where I get all like the magic people in the community and we draft and we drink and it's just a good time. And I said, you know, hey, if you want to come over, um, you know, I'd be happy to have you. Um, we're going to go to this SEG. We're looking for a teammate. You know, I would love to play with you. I love the, like what you were doing with the decks and so forth. So, you know, Dom is, is somebody that I really looked up to, like before I even knew him, you know, just his thinking process in the deck and the way he kind of approached the game. So that's what Dom and I actually got acquainted was just, you know, recognizing somebody else kind of going through that same, you know, testing process of, of testing their, their ideas. And that's why I love gaming. I know I'm not, I'm kind of going tangential here, but it's like, you can see glimpses into other people's personalities and the way they think, even though I didn't know Dom, I, I, I was able to like, this kid is like, yeah, like, this gets smart. You know what I mean? And yeah. that was before he blew up. And then, you know, two months later, everybody knows Dom Harvey. Harvey no, so. he's, he's a, I don't know him personally, but just observing his work, I'll call it work. Like whether it's the way he expresses himself on, on the podcast or his writing or his deck list, like he's a very deep thinker. There's something very admirable, admirable about that because it's, yeah, it's just admirable because like, I love the feeling that we're playing a, a certain game but there's such a gulf. Like, I like the fact there's a gulf. I like the fact that I'm like, like he might be more like a LeBron James and I'm more like, you know, someone who hasn't even played D1 basketball. Like we're playing the same game, but we're not playing, not really playing the same game. I really like that, um, that feeling because it always makes me feel like I can learn more, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I completely agree. And it's, it's art really, right? It's our form of art. You know, maybe you are an artist. I'm, I'm not sure, but I am not. No, no, I'm not artistic an artist. Anyway, no. and the way I express myself is actually through games. So to me, this is my art in some ways. So where yeah. do you think you get that hyper competitive drive from? <laughs> uh, my father, uh, not going to lie. You know, as kids, he, again, you know, very, he wasn't like totally Fletcher from Whiplash, but he was very much like a, you know, you, you play to win kind of person. And he actually never understood gaming. And I still don't know where I get my gaming love from because my brother is a super jock and in the military and my dad, you know, doesn't do any of this kind of stuff. So, but uh, definitely my father, you know, the early, earliest lessons in life he taught me, you know, he used to, uh, you know, he used to buy like a candy bar for my brother and I, and uh, he used to break it in half. And he would give me the smaller half, like he would do it on purpose and he'd give me the smaller half. And as a kid, I would be upset. And he's like, life isn't fair. So like, that, that's just very much like who he was. Like, he, yeah, and, yeah good, um, important life lessons. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, so he was probably the one that kind of instilled a, you know, if you're going to do something, make sure it's worthwhile doing or, you know, do it a hundred percent. So definitely my father is probably where I got that from. Yeah. Are you closer to your dad or to your mom? Um, it's hard to say. I've lived away for so long now. I mean, they'll always be my parents, but uh, I've kind of gone my own direction. And my parents split up a couple of years back. Um, you know, but I, I talk to them from time to time. 
I wouldn't say I'm closer with one than the other, but uh, I wouldn't say I'm like, like I'm, I'm definitely not the type of person that, that talks to them every day. I probably should do a better job at, at talking to my parents. I know I yeah. probably might regret it one day, but it's hard because my dad has the same kind of grind set that I have. Like he's still out there hustling. Like he just mm-hmm. turned 60 um, and we're kind of doing our own things. And we're, we're the type of family that, you know, or we have, I guess, the type of relationship where, like, I know he loves me and I love him and nothing will ever change that bond, but we don't always need to like, we don't express it in a very verbal kind of way. It's more like, it's like a respect, mutual respect kind of, thing. it's, yeah. it's, a it's, weird it's the non-language, the, the, the mutual grunts or the, the fist bumps or whatnot. Uh, yeah, exactly. The, yeah. Okay. We don't hug or yeah. Nobody <laughs> says, you know, I love you, but no, it's, it's okay. It's okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm Asian too. Right. So, you know, my, my parents uh, separated when I was in, in high school and it's it's weird because i've actually gotten much closer to at least my dad you know mm. over all these years because you know when you're younger you tend to take sides you tend to think that life is very one dimensional yeah. so i actually feel close i have one brother uh, as well I, I feel much closer to my my parents even though i'm not very good at calling them either yeah, but and now I'm in China. So it's like, I, I, I have yeah. even more reasons to call them than I don't. And uh, so I should probably call my mom today, but uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's family's family, right? Like, yeah. like you're not, you're not super close with all your family members, but you realize that they, they made you who you are. And, and we have to, we have to acknowledge that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I will say I'm probably closest with my brother, you know, gun to my head. I, I do talk to him quite a bit that we send our, each other like memes. He's like a friend. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah. Yeah. So your brother's, uh, you said he was a jock and he was in the military or is in the military? He's in the Air Force, the Canadian Air Force. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Quite a 180 of me. So yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's really, it's really fascinating. Just, just like hearing people's backstories in general. It's just the, the reason I do the podcast is just, I, I feel like everyone has an interesting story and it, it doesn't always come across and just hearing them talk about, magic or flesh and blood or whatever right um Mm. but i do want to also mention something that's uh uh a little bit about more about magic uh (laughs) i i talked to uh cyrus corman gill so cyrus is uh someone who's played magic for a long time he's uh i think he's a storm aficionado in in legacy but he plays everything uh he mentioned that he was he witnessed your um your run with hogak right because i think you had back-to-back hogak finishes i i believe it was a top eight of an scg open and then a mm-hmm. legacy gp back to back and i think cyrus was uh he was your quarterfinals opponent in gp alana and i gotta admit like when i decide on guests for this podcast i often just ask people like is this guy does this guy like a cool guy do you do you guys know him or her like should i should i try talking to him and reaching out to her and things like that and cyrus is just like man Tarek is just awesome. Like, you know, he, can you, can you, can you just describe maybe your, your, your brief interaction with Cyrus, if you remember that at all? Yeah, I do. Uh, we actually, we went to dinner, uh, in Atlanta. We, we hung out. Um, he, his mind just works on a different level in terms of storm as well. And he's just a really cool guy. And he's somebody that I kind of wish, you know, cause COVID happened, you know, we weren't able to travel anymore, but he's somebody I definitely would have probably hung out with a lot more had, you know, COVID never happened and had we kind of continued on, but um, 
you know, got to really hang out to him with him during that weekend. It's kind of unfortunate that I had to play him in top eight because I think, you know, my memory serves correct. You know, he was the only person I didn't want to play, uh, you know, out of, out of all the matchups in the, in that top eight. So, um, you know, quite a cool guy, you know, had a lot of fun at dinner with him, um, had, in, you know, enjoyed our conversations throughout the entire weekend. And uh, he was actually giving me pointers, you know, throughout the tournament. This is running like my ideas by him. Like, obviously, Storm's a bad matchup for Hogak. I'm like, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And I think he gave me a couple of ideas before the tournament even started on how to like change the deck. And then we actually ended up playing and it wasn't enough. And he ended up beating me. But uh, <laughs> he's yeah, just cool a faster guy. combo deck, right? Yeah. Yeah, to, to put it yeah. at the risk of putting it simplistically, of course. Yeah. No, he he deserved that win, and you know he went on to win the entire event. So, you know, long overdue for him. He's you know been the storm master to everybody for years. So I'm glad that that he was the one that ended up winning and beating me. Yeah, and I think now he's uh, moved on also a bit from magic things. I think he's trying to to do the law school thing. I'm not 100 sure, but. Uh... Uh, I still keep in touch with him. Really great guy. Uh, he did a podcast with me as well uh, years back. And uh, uh, people still tell me it's like one of their favorite episodes. So he's in the top five uh, pantheon. Uh, another guy I want to mention is uh, David Rude. So again, same wreck. It was like friends who told me, you got you to gotta interview you got to interview David Rude, right? This guy is mad underrated. He's like almost, he's basically a magic legend, not almost. He is a magic legend. I interviewed him last year for Humans of Magic, and we just had such a great vibe that I just kept in touch with him over the past year and just DM and message each other. And I know, like, of course, I follow him on Twitter. So naturally, it was all flesh and blood. And then that's how I found out about you because he was probably like signal boosting some of the, the content that you were involved in. And he was just like, you got to talk to Tarek. Like, like this guy understands something about flesh and blood. That's like uh, on a different level, but let me, let me, let me formulate this into a question. Like, can you describe David for us? Like talk about how you got to know David and uh, what you guys do together in, in flesh and blood or, or maybe otherwise, you know? David's one of the most special people you'll ever meet. You know, he's a literal living legend in the magic community uh, in, in, in Canada uh, among, you know, pros that have, that have come and are still kind of involved in the community. He quite literally carries the flesh and blood community in the Toronto uh, area. Um, you know, he runs a store, does magic as well. Um, just like an overall fantastic guy. Um, and when I first started learning flesh and blood, um, I also followed D on Twitter and, you know, I saw him tweeting out on it and I actually just kind of hit him up. It was like, Hey, you know, will you teach me? And without hesitation, he added me to his group chat. He kind of, you know, taught me literally like when I did not even know how a turn worked and I, I look back on it and he didn't have to do it. It was right in the middle of those like RTN seasons. Um, you know, the PTQ seasons, and they were trying to still flush out their deck. And he was taking time out of his day to literally teach somebody who didn't know the basic rules of the game when he could have been off testing with, with better players. And so, you know, I owe him, you know, everything in terms of my success in, in flesh and blood, because, you know, had it not been for him, maybe I never learned the game as, you know, I, as I know today and, and nothing really comes of it. So uh, just li a literal living legend and, uh, you know, somebody that, you know, I aspire to be to, you know, in 10, 10, 15 years from now. So. 
And I think he's consistent because he did the same thing with magic back in the day. He was always trying to bring people under his wing and just trying to like teach them the game. And I think he's done a lot for magic in Canada as well. Uh, yeah. So I have nothing but a agreement. It sounds like the glove fits. He's uh yeah, he's a great person. Just, just always makes time for, for people to learn. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So just talking a, a little bit about what's coming up next, I think you have a, you have a trip to, to France, right? PT France, uh, for flesh and blood for fab. Did you get any good sightseeing recommendations yet? I have. And my girlfriend who I think just went to bed, I kind of heard her walking around has been tirelessly planning. So we're actually planning on doing a five week trip, so I've only been outside North America once before in my life, and it was to England for like four or five days. So it was very brief. So I've never done, you know, the classic, uh, you know, trip to Europe that so many med students have done. You know, I've never had the time or the money to really go out and do that kind of thing. So I figured, you know, thanks to Team Dragon Shield, uh, who's kind of, you know, helping us out with housing experiences and some of the travel costs, I'll have like a week there kind of, you know, subsidized by them. And we're going to turn this into a whole vacation. So we're going to start in Belgium, uh, do the Netherlands, and kind of work our way south from France to Switzerland to Italy, and then try and hit Croatia up before uh, coming back home. But everything's still up in the air. You know, the great thing about Flesh and Blood is that it's a national game, international game, just like Magic is. And I met even at Pro Tour One tons of people from all over Europe. You know, one couple even invited uh, my girlfriend and I to, to crash at their house in, in Germany for a little bit. Um, so, you know, we just may play it by ear, but uh, we're still trying to figure it out. But I think the plan for now is Netherlands, Belgium, France, and then either Germany, Italy or something like that. We're going to move our way down south, though. That's awesome. And are you going to be meeting a lot of people that, you know, like fellow players at that PT or a lot of them going that you know of? Yeah, so we're, we're trying to do a testing house and not just with us, but I'm trying to coordinate with some of the German uh, Magic, old Magic, now Flesh and Blood players as well. Um, you know, trying to get an international group together because it will be a split draft constructed format, uh, just like Magic. And it'll be kind of really cool to... You know, that sounds really of, cool. That sounds like Magic in the old days, right? If I'm being it honest. It literally is. And, and that's why I've enjoyed it so much because it really does feel like the golden years of magic in terms of competitive play and the game is so new and fresh that it hasn't gotten to a point where you know people are kind of tired of it yet and you know our group is from new zealand australia america canada now i know people in germany france you know it's just it's crazy so um we're going to try and get everybody there for about a week before the pro tour you know do drafts kind of hang out in little um you know, my girlfriend's going to come and she's just going to go sightseeing or whatever. But, and then at, once that's all said and done, you know, we're still talking. Um, I'm talking to some people and they may join us on parts of the trip if they're not going all the way, but uh, we're very much in that planning stage still. That sounds amazing. Last question for you. What's the best place that people can find you on social and uh, if they want to connect with you or maybe just follow what you do? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I still don't view myself as really a content creator. I'm just somebody who got lucky, right place, right time, and had some success in flesh and blood. And, you know, I love kind of tweeting, you know, I think it's a perfect form of social media for me. It's like short burst, you know, I can kind of get a thought across without, you know, having to do too much. But if you, if you like me or you want to learn more about me, you can follow me on Twitter. 
My handle is uh, at Tariq, T-A-R-I-Q, Patel, P-A-T-E-L, 10. So at Tariq Patel, 10. Um, and then I do also, you know, uh, call them over at Channel Fireball for Flesh and Blood Strategy. So you can follow me there. And, um, you know, 983 Media, I do vlogs sometimes or just random kind of interviews about my trips. And uh, it's more just a fun little project for me. And if you enjoy Flesh and Blood or, or card games and, and miss kind of the Pro Tour scene that, you know, hopefully will be right up your alley. So Twitter, Tark Patel 10, Channel Fireball, you can read my articles and then 983 Media over on YouTube. I kind of put myself on their, their site. Excellent. I feel like just talking to you today has made me want to get into the game or at least <laughs> learn more about the game. So this is like a great advertisement as well. And, uh, and also, you know, if anybody wants to uh, become a medical professional, hopefully this podcast has convinced you. <laughs> I'm just joking on that one. But, but Tarek, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you did as well. Yeah, James, thanks for having me. You know, I've loved your stuff in the past. And I'm honestly humbled to to be a part of, you know, kind of the all-star lineup you've had uh, previously. So definitely walking among giants here and you yourself, you know, big, big fan. So uh, I really appreciate you having me. It's my pleasure. Have a great rest of the evening where you are. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans of Magic. To support the show, visit humansofmagic.com, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at humansofmagic, and you can also consider supporting us at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.